loving like talking with you guys and really learning about what life is like. My dream is to give the rights, give the freedom to the women of my country. How can I get married? It's everybody's right. Your family or your freedom. There's more to my story. There's more to our story. There's more to my story. Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Little, and you're listening to the More to Her Story podcast. You'll hear from journalists, thought leaders, social entrepreneurs, and of course, girls who are changing the game in their countries and communities. Thanks for choosing to be a part of the conversation, and I'll see you inside. Marissa Kerma is the program director of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center. She was a non-resident fellow in the International Security Program at New America. Marissa also served as director of the Office of Jordan's Prince Ali bin al-Hussein and is press attaché and director of the Information Bureau at the Embassy of Jordan in Washington, D.C. Marissa has worked in a range of roles relating to foreign policy, international security, and gender equality across the Middle East and North Africa, also known as the MENA region. I'm so excited to speak with her today and dig a little bit deeper into her story. Enjoy this conversation. So, Marissa, the first question that I, I generally ask all of my podcast guests um, is, how has your faith, in whatever way that you think about or conceptualize the word faith, shaped who you are and what you do in the world? That's a really good question. Um, I think I define faith very differently. So we're not just talking about sort of the religion you're born into, um, but it's really about trust and confidence and believing in yourself and embracing the people around you who are there to support you and who are there to guide you. And it's about being open to learn, to embrace who you are, but also accept your mistakes and learn from your failures. So it's really very broad for me, but um, sometimes it's easy for challenges to, you know, come along and um, sort of inject doubt into what we do or who we are. And that's mm -hmm. where your faith in yourself and what you do and really your ecosystem is tested. Yeah. Um, but with every challenge and with every test, I think it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And of course, the environment you're you're born into and you're raised in very much shapes who you are. Um, mm -hmm. we're, we're all sort of, we are learning our experiences and then we tell stories and we try to at least the hope is through you know telling our stories we're able to communicate better with others and connect with others yeah and you you were born and raised in Jordan mm -hmm. um, you know and from living in Jordan I lived in Jordan in, in, when I was 21 um, and so from living there and just having conversations with young women um, I've you know gathered it's not always easy growing up um, as a, as a young woman in a relatively conservative society such as Amman. And I know things are changing now and, and parts of Amman are becoming more culturally lax, but can you describe your upbringing in Jordan? Um, mm -hmm. and how did you, if you did face any challenges, um, how did you challenge any cultural or social norms that may have sought to hinder you as a woman? 
Yeah, I mean, it is certainly a conservative society and it's predominantly a patriarchal society as well. Um, and even though um, laws have reformed across the history of Jordan to allow, you know, to give women their equal rights to men when it comes to education and um, access to the workforce, um, there are still, uh, you know, many laws in place uh, particularly family law and personal status laws that really limit women's um, abilities to just be independent. They, they they kind of rob women from exercising agency. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you see um, uh, asset ownership, for example, in, in Jordan and the rest of the MENA region being one of the lowest rates worldwide. It's very much tied to the legislative framework that um, very much limits women's abilities or women's access, right? Mm. Um, so so that's sort of on the legal front, but I think on the societal and cultural front, um, I mean, I was very fortunate because I was born and raised into a family that uh, treated both my brother and I equally. Um, there were, um, there are always, of course, sort of outside pressures, external pressures to your nuclear um, sort of community. Um, and that is very much similar to the global trends that we see um, in gendering roles in society. Uh, so I was um, always very focused on my education. The messaging that I um, was raised with is, uh, I would say, feminist for the times, uh, very much focused on you need to you know, you work hard, um, education is the way forward, the world is your oyster, you can do anything. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think in, the, in that sense, you are, I was not limited. But of course, you know, um, I, you know, that sort of bubble existed in a larger context that, uh, that was very much uh, impacted by so many other, you know, sort of social norms, uh, where, women are expected um, to go into, um, you know, roles designed by society um, or, or uh, uh, shaped by um, cultural and, you know, traditions, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I see, I see that in, in conversations with people um, in Jordan around, you know, women in the workforce, um, because I think most people, now understand it as um, uh, as an, an economic necessity because things are becoming more difficult for families with one sole breadwinner. Uh, but beyond that, it's um, it remains a challenge. I mean, Jordan continues to have one of the lowest female labor participation rates in the world, even though when it comes to education, Jordan has very successfully closed the gender gap and not just in primary and secondary but tertiary education as well in the in the past few years i would say you know as far as the data that i've seen women surpass their male um, you know um, male counterparts in tertiary education so a lot of it is really about mindsets um, and you know cultural and social mindsets are difficult to change you cannot change it overnight you it's and it's it you know we say it takes a village <laughs> It really does take a village to get people to change how they think, how they believe, what they believe in, and um, and then their their behavior. Yeah. Um, so I think um, 
Um, more role modeling is important. Um, it's important for women uh, to see that other women can be in, in positions of authority. They can be at the helm of organizations uh, and not only in the sectors that we very often uh, see women in, such as teaching or nursing uh, yeah. or administrative jobs, right? What we call the feminine sectors. Um, so uh, the more women scientists, girls get to see, the more likely yeah. that they will understand and grow up to think that, you know, that's possible for me too. Now, on the flip side of this, it's important also to have a conversation around masculinity, because I think that the, the, the gendered roles in our society, not just in Jordan, but I think in the MENA region, um, uh, also puts a lot of pressure on men. They are the sole breadwinners. They are the heads of the household. Um, you know, th those are, um, you know, those responsibilities come with a burden because Absolutely. we're also living in very challenging times. And so, you know, whilst, of course, um, trying to redefine masculinity in the modern age is going to be, you know, quite, uh, quite a journey um, with many challenges, I think it's um, part and parcel of any conversation about advancing women's rights and um, empowering women um, in, in Jordan or in the MENA region um, at large. It's such a good point, and I I talk with my with my male friends, particularly from from the the MENA region, about this often. Um, and it's but it feels personally, it feels like a very looming, like it's so it's so big. It's I mean, how do you shift such you know embedded sociocultural like traditions as you're as you're saying? Um, mm -hmm. You you went on to receive two masters. Um, yes, yes. At both Harvard University Kennedy School of Government and. Um, Georgetown University in international security and foreign policy. Usually I found that people who go into foreign policy, you know, they want to make a, a difference. Um, they want to see real change in the world. What was your, what was your why? What did you want to see change? I was born into a family that uh, worked in diplomacy. So both my parents were diplomats with the Jordanian Foreign Service. Um, my mom was one of the first women diplomats. Um, there were only a few of them back then in the 70s. Um, so she was one of those first, like one of the first batch. Um, and so the conversations were really um, always revolved around what's happening in the region around us. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s in Jordan, um, right next door, the um, intifada was happening. The Palestinian-Israeli conflict was still, you know, there were no peace treaties signed, with the exception, of course, of with uh, with Egypt. Um, and um, uh, and then um, I grew up with um, a very sort of um, intent, focus, and interest in what's happening around us. I mean, you cannot not react to sort of the reality around you. Um, I remember so clearly when um, um, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and what that looked like for us in Jordan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Jordan had um, import uh, imported um, oil from Iraq at very discounted prices, which kept the price low, and it was subsidized, of course, by the government. Um, and then, of course, with 
with the start of the war, the first Gulf War, um, in reaction to Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, that affected oil prices in Jordan. And what it looked like for us was for a country that is resource poor, particularly when it comes to you know um, oil and gas, what it looked like for us was the government tried to um, uh, limit um, the number of cars on the road. And mm. so there was a really interesting system where um, if your license plates ended with an odd number, then you used that car that day. And the next day you use, you use, the, you use the car that you have with a, um, an even number. And wow. not everybody had two cars and not everybody, even those with two cars, not everybody had license plate numbers that ended with either, you know, odd or even numbers. And I remember that affected how we would go to school because we had to borrow my uncle's car <laughs> for the odd days because, because there, you know, our license plates both were, you know, um, even numbers. Uh, and that's just a small example of how it affected me as a child going to school, right? Um, and I would have these conversations with my parents all the time. So for me, it was really um, about just how uh, what it looked like to to just grow up um, in the middle of all of it. And even even before that, I always talk to my friends about this here in the U.S. You know, I grew up watching Sesame Street in Arabic, English, and Hebrew <laughs> because we had access to Sesame Street in English, uh, the uh, Simsim, Sesame Street in Arabic on Jordanian t television. And then there was also a Hebrew version on Israeli TV because that these were the channels that we had access to back then before satellites um, were even a thing, right, in, in the early 80s. Um, and so, um, you know, there were always, it's, it's, part of, it's part of where I come from and what you're exposed to. And so you're, you always have questions. And, and I, I um, um, you know, going back to the modeling issue, it's a lot of it is, is about, you know, like my, my parents um, um, hosting people, talking about world affairs, talking about what's happening in the region, um, you know, rituals in the morning with newspapers um, and, you know, the news of the day, watching the news with my parents. Uh, so all of that really got me very curious, um, and I tended to veer towards the social sciences even early on in high school. Um, I found it fascinating to understand what's happening. Um, and then in high school, I remember with um, with uh, the history class, the two things that were fascinating to me were the history of the Cold War that I absolutely loved to um, to read about, um, but also American history, primarily, um, uh, you know, um, between World War One and World War Two, and I even wrote my thesis on it in high school. And so um, that really got me thinking about the world and how different people and different cultures come together. Um, my mom is a polyglot, um, speaks multiple languages. And so our friends group was also quite cosmopolitan and very international. And I think all of that really affected, um, you know, how I think and how I see the region. Um, so for me, it's really sort of a torch that was passed on for my parents, um, but also seeing the injustice around us in the region. Um, I, I will never forget um, watching images of um uh you know the 
children of the Intifada in, in the Palestinian territories. Um, I will never forget um, watching um, children um, in the civil war in Lebanon. Those mm. images really stick with you. And, and yeah. even though like years later, I can still remember those images. Yeah. And, um, and that's when you see that there's, there's a lot happening around you that needs um, a lot more people to be um, invested and involved. And I think that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> oh, it's a great answer. And you've worked now in a wide range of, of roles, um, both in the development sector and in foreign policy, um, with a particular emphasis on the MENA region, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And you currently head the Middle East program at the Wilson Center, a leading global think tank out of DC. And you wrote, you wrote in your in your recent a recent piece for the Wilson Center um, that the MENA region loses five hundred and seventy five billion dollars a year due to the lack of female economic participation. It's a huge number. It is. Uh, what what in your opinion is is the greatest challenge or among the greatest challenges that that young women face in the region today? So I think, um, I mean, we, we look at the MENA region as one whole region, but of course it's very diverse. Um, right. um, and unfortunately, um, it also is a region that continues to host a number of active conflicts. And in those conflict zones, um, you know, the, the first victims basically of conflict are primarily women and children, and that affects access to education, access to the workforce. So when we're looking at the data as a whole, um, you know, those are the regions that sort of bring the average, those are the conflicts or the areas that bring the the, the regional average further down. Um, countries in the Gulf are doing a lot better with women's economic participation. They also have more resources and the governments are able to invest a lot more in addressing the barriers. But again, if we're just looking at um, generally what the barriers are that women face with some variations, of course, it's not education with, with maybe the sole exception, you know, again, looking at some of the conflict areas like Syria, Yemen, to a lesser extent, Libya. Um, but it's really, um, it's, it's really um, about the work-life balance um, uh, as well as the work environments. So um, the work environments have to be safe. You have to have very strong laws that protect women in the workforce, you know, from sexual harassment, for example. And they have to be specific to the workforce or to the workplace. Um, so a number of countries have passed um, laws pertaining to sexual harassment in the workplace, but there's still a long way to go. Equal pay is another one. Um, that's also another challenge that you see. Um, the um, uh, availability, uh, uh, access, as well as the cost effectiveness um, of uh, childcare centers. Um, that is so important because in order for us, for gender roles at home to change, you have to have a support system because women cannot work full-time mm-hmm. um, or part-time and still be full-time um, uh, housewives and full-time mothers. It is quite 
a challenge. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a working mom of two young girls um, and I love motherhood, but it really is challenging to try to balance it all without a support system mm-hmm. um, and an affordable support system. And I think if, if anything, the pandemic has really um, unraveled all these layers of how important the yeah. care industry is. Uh, so that is that is definitely something to be um, to be looked at in the region because it remains a barrier. In some parts of of the region, particularly when we're looking at some of the smaller towns and rural areas, mm-hmm. transportation is a challenge. Safe transportation is a challenge. We want to make sure that women are have access to um, safe and reliable transportation to take them from where they live to the workplace. Um, And that is, it constantly comes up in focus groups and in surveys uh, in countries like Tunisia, in Jordan, in Egypt. And so it's, um, again, it's it's not something that you can fix overnight, but I think particularly with the private sector, if you own a company and you provide transportation services for for your women employees from the surrounding area, you're doing them a huge favor. You're benefiting your own company. Mm. And I think lastly, I would I would I would say um, um, I would again go back to the social and cultural mindsets. Um, mm. You know, people may be asked in an interview or in a, in a survey if they support women in the workforce. You know, men in general, and you you would generally you know get a yes. But then when you dig a little bit deeper. Um, other questions start to, other responses, uh, excuse me, start to emerge. Um, Mm. And in many cases, a woman's right to work is not her own individual choice. It is a, it is one that she makes with her husband, or if she's unmarried, it's, it's a choice that she has to make. It's a decision that she has to make with her male guardian. Mm. And so that goes back to the limitations, both legislative as well as cultural to women's agency. And that's not to say that there aren't exceptions. There are many really good exceptions. And I think, honestly, when we're, we're looking at the region, the future is feminine because women are so determined to do so much more, perhaps because of the barriers they face. There's an incentive for them to give yeah. and to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And we're going to see a lot more happening um, at the grassroots level in particular, to try to change some of those mindsets and change um, uh, change laws as necessary or stipulations within um, existing laws. And I think that's um, I think that's the hope. Uh, but that's generally why we see such low economic participation by women in the workforce. yeah, and 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 going back to what you said earlier about how despite the fact that in Jordan, men and women both have equal, like, I think women even said women surpass um, actually going to university yeah. and getting an education. Um, right. Yet after university's over yeah. and life begins and, you know, there's still this uneven balance of. Correct. There's an, an uneven balance. And, and look, and that's, that's why um, the solution is really a multifaceted um, one, um, because you have to have a number of approaches it has to be very comprehensive um so the education system plays an important role your education curriculum your school curriculum has to encourage 
women to to participate in the workforce because you need your male counterparts to also have um, to be exposed to these positive messages about women. Um, there were there was an interesting research paper that I always cite, uh, which was uh, basically a gender assessment of uh, school books in Jordan that looked at um, how you know the messaging um, is framed when it comes to women's participation in the workforce and women's in education. So when it comes to women's education, it's quite gender positive. But when it comes to women's participation in the workforce, it's gender it's gender negative, mm. meaning that women are encouraged to go into again some of the feminine sectors, yeah. um, and it's it's like in the text. Um, and then when you look at, for example, images, there are always images of women nurses and teachers mm-hmm. rather than women engineers, right, or women parliamentarians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of some some of these um, frames. I think have to um, have to be updated yeah. um, so that both young girls and boys are able to see that this is possible. Absolutely. Uh, and and so uh, that's, for example, you know, education. Um, and then you have the government has to play a role too. The government has to have the political will to want to change some of these laws, precisely because, as you mentioned there's a huge economic loss for all these educated women staying at home or just doing part-time work. Um, and so um, I think there's a lot um, a lot more to do, um, but there's, there's also a lot happening. So I think, that, you know, it's, I don't want to say that the, um, uh, uh, that the glasses half, um, half empty, let's, try to be more positive. Again, there's a lot more to do, but I think there's um, good momentum on the ground, I think, um, largely driven by young girls and women. Right. And you're an advocate for women's entrepreneurship. Um, yes. And you've also noted that, you know, in, in the region, women's entrepreneurship is at 4%, one of the lowest globally. Um, why is Why is women's entrepreneurship so important? And what can countries everywhere, but particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, be doing to encourage more women to become entrepreneurs? It's a really good question because um, it really goes back to how we are raised as girls and women. I mean, I see this here in the United States in pop culture. You know, there is a shift in some of the framing now in some some in like in the film industry about how what what's possible for women, right? Um, and so you, you see things changing, um, slightly, but I think that the, in the MENA region, there are other barriers, particularly access to finance. So like for, for, for a young woman to try to get a loan at a bank in Jordan, it's very challenging, Mm -hmm. um, because you need to have assets for collateral in most cases they don't. And so, um, uh, uh, even with with um, women registered businesses, the the people who are really running them are their husbands or their male um, uh, you know brothers or or, or guardians. Um, so there's a lot of it goes back to sort of this um, 
independence and agency exercised by women. But I think in 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 general, when we look at the the whole picture globally, um, it's again it really starts with just changing the narrative um, for young girls about mm. what is possible. Um, it's about instilling confidence in who they are, not questioning um, every step that they take. There are so many studies. The one that I cite um, also in, in some of my conversations is about how women and men in the U.S. apply to jobs differently. So for um, uh, a man applying for a job, they would look at the qualifications, and if they have like three out of ten of the qualifications, they feel confident enough to apply for the job. But if a woman were to look at the same post, she would feel that she needs to cover 80 to 90% of the qualifications in order to, to apply for the job. And so really, um, this is like a, a crisis in confidence that we have mm -hmm. to attend really yeah. early on. Um, I, see, I see this in the region. I see this here. Um, I'm very careful about choosing uh, books for my daughters um, so that they understand that they can do anything too, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, um, and, and a lot of this messaging, a lot of these frames are very subtle, right, sometimes, but they do make a huge difference. You know, I, you know, in addition to my work at the Wilson Center, I also um, teach a class at Georgetown in leadership at the School of Foreign Service. And, um, um, and, I, and I see this, I see that I see this with a lot of my students as well. Um, when when we have these conversations, um, I always try to inject this gender component to look at things differently, right? Um, and I and I sense that you know all of us have grown up with some sort of self-imposed limitations. Maybe not a glass ceiling that um, that is like outside of you know, of our environment, like in our environment, but m maybe like an internal glass ceiling, like in yeah. our in our heads, right? Like, why are we constantly um, doubting who we are? Um, and it goes back to your faith question earlier. It's so hard to keep believing in yourself, um, especially when when you um, experience challenge and you make mistakes and you fail. Um, but that is so important. So. Yeah anything it's a it's really um we we really need to come together uh to to talk about this very openly and again um because i know there's been so much focus on the messaging towards young girls but we need to also focus on the young boys because they also have their their own challenges in a patriarchal or conservative society absolutely um, yeah, so 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 efforts have to look at both in education, in development, in civil society. Um, and again, this is change that will take a long time, right? Um, to start to to see the benefits. Yeah. Um, yeah. Benefits for, for everybody. For everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the key here is to show everyone what these gains are because with every change particularly social and cultural change right um there's always a sense of loss of what 
we what things are right we, that's why people are resisting change because they feel that they're going to lose something right especially people who are in those privileged positions absolutely absolutely um so if we frame it in terms of well how is it going to benefit you uh what are the gains then you're more likely to have more people on board not everybody is going to jump on board right away and that's okay too i think that's part of the process of change yeah so good it's so good and that's a great segue to your platform that you recently started um called if i'm saying this right and and hedjuana and hedjuana yeah 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 um which i guess is the name's origins date back to the Mesopotamia era. She was the first named author, female mm-hmm. author, or just author. No, f- first penned author first ever. Penned author. Wow. Yeah, it just happens to be a woman. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And this this platform, you started to amplify the voices of women leaders in the Middle East and North Africa. Yes. Um, why why did you decide to start this platform? And what what has surprised you most since starting it? Really good questions. So um, why? Because there was a big vacuum in um, voices from the region, but particularly women who were working across sectors um, to try to change their own realities. Um, They're all educated women contributing to um, government, uh, to parliament, uh, to scientific um, uh, research, to technology, to education, um, to development, to women's rights, to human rights, um, to uh, addressing the challenge of displacement and migration and refugees. There are so many women doing amazing work. And I really wanted to um, create space for their voices, their experiences, and and target those stories um, and those um, and and their research and their work towards policymaking audiences here in Washington mm. and whoever is interested in the Middle East. I think um, we we hear from uh, sort of the same people over and over over and over again in the think tank community, and it's about um, it's about having more diversity um, in the field, right? And um, what surprised me, um, even though I knew that I will come across so many impressive stories, is how much more impressive a lot of these women were mm-hmm. um, in in what they're doing, in um, their solidarity with each other. I think one thing that I've learned and that I appreciate and I think is an excellent data point is how a lot of these women know each other. They work together across borders in the region. Mm-hmm. They're learning from each other. Um and they are supporting each other. And I think um, that's really the way forward. Um, it's sort of a, a um, you know, like a women without borders kind of network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was the most pleasant surprise about uh, Enoduana, you know, uh, three years later. Mm. And you said your goal is to influence policymakers in DC, for example. That's that's really that's really quite quite a goal. And um, yeah, and and you're not going to change again, sort of minds over time. Um, but it's a, really about having the platform and the and the network, um, and and 
the access to to these people um and once they write once and twice then we also feature them uh, on our panels so that people see them and hear them um you know we had um stories from um women working at the grassroots level in yemen mm. uh, to help the internally displaced uh to um to you know former ministers of women's affairs and family affairs in tunisia right so it's really a very big region so many diverse voices um you know women uh as um as experienced as former ambassadors and ministers uh and young women who are um you know involved in civil society and who are part of an activist network at age 16 and 17 right mm. in libya right so it's mm. it's really a very diverse group of people um and we try to um keep up as much as possible with That's their awesome. work yeah what are you currently focused on at the wilson center uh we have a number of projects going on i think one of my favorite ones is our podcast uh, riada that's focused yeah. on entrepreneurship um that we're we get... <laughs> thank you thank you we get to uh talk to um uh again so many impressive and inspiring people from jordan and across the region um all you know different stakeholders in the larger um entrepreneurship ecosystem um that's one of my favorite projects uh we're also working with the supreme council for women in bahrain on a project to focus on women and finance and financial inclusion and mm. that's sort of you know um uh like the second iteration of our first report on women and leadership in the public sector in the mana region mm. um so we sort of were zooming into one of the findings which goes back to again um you know women's agency access to finance and the challenges that they face and how different countries are trying to um address some of the challenge these challenges bahrain is one of them um the work of the supreme council is truly admirable in trying to work with different government entities um and change um basically operating systems from within so that everybody is is um uh gender conscious uh mm. because sometimes we don't know that our laws and processes and regulations are gender blind but mm, when yeah. when we are aware then we're more likely to make better decisions that would benefit everybody equally um so those are two really interesting projects uh that we're working on and we continue to work um on um the digital transformation um of economies in the region um that's been also uh an, another area of focus uh we were just at the Doha forum in Qatar oh. uh, where the Wilson Center co-sponsored a panel on the, glo- the global displacement challenge with um ambassador Mark Green who's the president and CEO of the Wilson Center chairing a an excellent um discussion with um Filippo Grande the mm. UNHCR um had um the Jordanian foreign minister the greek minister of migration and um the president of vital voices uh so um so it's quite busy um but uh there's quite a lot to do given that it's um a very big region with uh, so much diversity um and a lot of challenge as well mm. 
Marissa, the, the question that I usually end all of my interviews with is, it's kind of a, an interesting question. It's what is the more to your story? This podcast is obviously called More to Her Story. And yeah. um, there's more to everybody's story that we can't always see from the surface. And so I'm wondering, what is the more to your story? That's a really good one. I like that. Uh, so the more to my story is that I'm learning how to be um, really effective at work, but also balancing that with being a present and attentive mom <laughs> to, to two young toddlers. I think that um, it's made me, it's making me appreciate more and more everything that my mother has done and mothers in general are, are doing for their, um, for their children. Mm. Um, and it just goes back to, you know, where we started about uh, faith and believing in yourself and um, moving forward despite the challenges. It is, um, I think the, the, the more surprising aspects is that I think I'm learning more from my daughters than I'm teaching. It's a lot of moments of, uh, uh, or like, you know, capturing moments of challenge, but also um, continuity. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think that's the more part to me, right? That the extension of everything that I do is really about my family, my husband, and my, um, my daughters, Mila and Sophia, and how um, I try to be part of the solution to make a better world for them. Mm. Mm. You're a great role model for them. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's really amazing to hear Thank more you. of your story. I, I love it. I love your questions. And thanks so much for inviting me. Um, and look forward to listening to more episodes as well. So keep doing what you're doing. This conversation ends here, but we don't have to stop talking. Give us a follow on Instagram at more to her story official or go to moretoherstory.org to submit your work. Thanks so much for listening and check back in every month for new episodes.